If you want to, you can turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. As we'll look in the first 11 verses. Um, we're just naturally suspicious. And, and you know, we, we all can attest to this simply by our view of politicians. By our view of pastors. By our view of people in leadership positions. We can, we're just suspicious people. We have a struggle trusting people. Barbara Mitzel wrote a book, Trust in Modern Societies, The Search for the Basis of Social Order. In this book, she mentions three things that trust does in the life of a person. One, it makes us, it makes social life predictable. It makes it predictable because you tend to hang around people that you trust. It creates a sense of community because you, because the more you trust, the more you share with those who you trust. And trust makes it easier for people to work together because you eliminate the possibility of backbiting or backstabbing. The more we trust our community, the more life just seems to get better. You know, I, in this, there are three spiritual truths. One is that we need to trust in God because the more we trust him, the more we'll hang out with him. <laughs> the more <laughs> we trust him, the more we'll share his work. And the more we trust him, the easier it will be to work with him and with his church to accomplish our full kingdom potential. Now, if that be true, and I believe that to be true, by reason we can also suggest that the less we trust God, the less we spend time with him. The less we trust God, the less we share with him. And the less we trust God, the less we do with his church. So even when we can't see what's happening, when we don't know what God's up to, let's still trust this process. It'll work things much better for our good when we trust him. Here when we look in the book of Acts, we find that the writer helps us to really see that we can trust God's process. Uh, the Bible tells us in these first 11 verses, says the former account I made owed Theophilus of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandment to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and being assembled together with them. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they have come together, they ask him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, is is it not for you to know times or seasons? It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. I know as we, as we do begin to look at the beginning of this book, this book of Acts, as we are looking here today in this message, in these first 11 verses, what we find is Jesus' last words to the disciples. However, throughout the book, it's the work of the disciples that take shape. It's not just Jesus' last words to them, but their obedience to him and the work that they do, we find in the book of Acts. This book was written by a physician by the name of Luke. Luke is, a, is also a gospel writer. He's not just the writer of Acts, but he's the author of the letter or the gospel letter of Luke. In Luke's gospel, he emphasizes Jesus' ancestry. He emphasizes his birth and his early life before he moves chronologically through his earthly ministry. In Luke's gospel, he addressed the gospel as the most, he addresses the gospel to the most excellent Theophilus in an attempt to make known what Theophilus has been taught was true. Now, when we look in Luke's gospel, in the first four verses, the Bible says, insomuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you in orderly uh, account, most excellent Theophilus. Right there, 
what Luke is telling Theophilus, because I understand, because I've been taught from the eyewitnesses, because I understand clearly what happened in the life of Jesus while he was here on earth, I'm writing this letter to you. Uh, and he's telling him here, he's saying this is a most accurate account. Do you know Luke's gospel is the longest of the gospel letters? And because it's the longest of the gospel letters, we can look at it, we'll find a more accurate account of it being chronologically in order. He says here that you may know for certainty that these things which were instructed. It seems to me that Luke has a real clear understanding that he had been taught the truth. And he wanted Theophilus to understand this also. And we will also see that Luke opens up the book of Acts by addressing the book to Theophilus. While the gospel of Luke focused on the life and the earthly ministry of Jesus, Acts instead focuses on what took place after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So the gospel of Luke focused on Jesus' work on earth in obedience to the Father and through the power of the Holy Spirit, where the book of Acts focused on Jesus' disciples' work on earth in obedience to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I just want to stop right there for a minute and share this with you, that this reminds us that while Jesus was on earth, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> While Jesus was on earth, the Holy, the Holy Trinity was at work. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit was very active. Jesus did not work alone. Uh, everything we find that Jesus done, the Father the, and, the, and the Holy Spirit were involved in it. So it makes sense that everything that we find Jesus' disciples done, all three were involved. In obedience to the Father, the disciples followed Jesus' commands and were able to accomplish them through the power of the Holy Spirit. This ought to excite us right there to know that even the disciples, when Jesus had left, that everything they'd done was from a command of Jesus and they'd done in obedience to the Father and they'd done through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know why that should excite us? Because anything the Father calls us to do or anytime we see the command of Jesus written to us that we ought to know without a shadow of a doubt, we can accomplish whatever he has for us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to stress or worry about, about when we, whether we can or whether we should obey the Father. If we have the commands of Jesus and we follow his commands, it will please the Father. And the truth of the matter is he will accomplish it through us. We won't accomplish it in our own power. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. So if we know this, and I believe most of you in, in here, and I know most people in the world who profess Jesus as their Savior, they actually believe this. My question is, why do we struggle with it? How can we lose if we're obeying God the Father through following his son, Jesus Christ, and he works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Should there ever be a time that he calls us to do something and we worry about whether we can do it? I'm convinced of this. God's not asking us to do anything. 
that he's all not already been working in himself. <laughs> and if he's already been working, what, what do you mean by that preacher? Here's what I mean. I mean, he's not asking you to witness to no one that he hasn't already been working on their hearts. They're ready to receive you or they're ready to reject you. But he's already been there working on their hearts. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to be afraid. If he's gone before us, he's laid a path open for us. God wants to do an amazing work through us, but we must trust this process. And when we look in this passage, it appears that there's still a lot of confusion on the part of those who are following Christ. So Jesus begins here to help them. And we notice the, the assurance that he's given them. We notice there's an assurance given as we look in this passage. And the assurance, what we find in this passage, it pertains to the Holy Spirit of God. In Jesus' earthly ministry, its focus, his focus is teaching on the kingdom of God. And after Jesus' resurrection, while he was presenting himself alive to many people for 40 days and 40 nights, he spoke often of the kingdom of God. And at the appointed time, while Jesus was preparing his disciples for his ascension, he commanded them to remain in Jerusalem. Now, we, we often want to think that there's just 12 here, but there's many. Some scholars think there may be 500 people gathered around as Jesus is speaking and sharing this. There's, there's many followers of Jesus at this time, and he's telling them, just remain in Jerusalem. Don't go back to your homes because they'd have been scattered about. But he wants them to come together for a purpose and as he did this what we find is there was a promise that of the father that 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 they had heard jesus teach about what was the promise the promise was the coming of the holy spirit jesus is assuring them that it won't be long stay here in jerusalem it won't be long the holy spirit would come upon them well one disciple he asked lord at this time, Jesus has just told them, get this now, he's just told them that soon the Holy Spirit is coming and he will indwell you and you will be endued with power from on high. Basically, this is what he's telling them. And one of these disciples speaks up <laughs> and he asks this question. Lord, will you at that time restore your kingdom? Well, we find that so often we miss the main point, don't we? With this question, the disciples, they had been listening, but they were still failing to understand Jesus' teachings. The disciples were still thinking of an earthly of an earthly kingdom. They were still thinking of a materialistic kingdom. They were still thinking that, that Jesus was going to reign supreme here on earth. Uh, he, they were thinking that, that instead of really focusing on what the truth was, they had missed the whole point. Well, the truth in this, that there would be a physical reign of the Messiah. And there would be a, a rain here on earth. Because Matthew's gospel tells us in 1927 through 30 that Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and follow you. Therefore, what 
shall we have? So Jesus answered, and Jesus tells them about his kingdom. He said to them, surely I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many of you who are first will be last and last first. Here we find Jesus had told them that and that stuck in their mind. And now Jesus is telling them that soon the Holy Spirit's going to come. And their mind goes back to that teaching. But this was not the time for that. This was not the time for the disciples to be jockeying for position. This was not the time for them to want to gain influence. It was not the time for them to concern themselves of their authority and power. Instead, it was time for them to be concerned about service and ministry. It was time for them to be concerned about sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It was a time to share the salvation is available to all who receive Jesus as their personal Savior. We miss the main thing so often and we miss God's true blessings you know I've shared with you in the past that when I was at Campbell's Divinity School we were told not to focus on the end of our time there but to enjoy the journey the reason we were told this was that if we focused on the wrong thing we would miss the most important thing the most important thing about me being in divinity school was not that I acquired credentials. You know, and that's good. You know what credentials will do? It'll help you jockey for position. It'll help you leverage for popularity. It'll help you be able to go from one church to another church, from small church to a large church to a larger church if you got the right credentials. What little bit of credentials I have in my pocket, I would never get the invitation to go from Reedy Branch to a church of 5,000 or 10,000. But that wasn't the time for me to worry about credentials. It was a time for me to want to draw close to God it was a time for me to want to receive all sorts of information and all sorts of exposure it was a time for me to want to improve the skill set that God had placed in me it was a time for me to learn all that I could learn so I could come back and be the man that God had called me to be in this time in this place it wasn't a time for me to, to worry about myself it was a time for me to focus on God and what he had for me to do and that's what it was with the disciples. They were, it was a time for them to focus on ministry. A time for them to focus on what they would do when Jesus is gone. A time for them to focus on having the Holy Spirit to empower and enable them. Instead, they were worried about what position they would have. Oh, doesn't that sound like us? Oh, we elect officials based upon what benefit we're going to get based upon, instead of basing it upon what would God have us to do? How often we do miss the main point. How often we make church about us. How often do we call this my church? We will look for a church and we'll settle on a church to call our home because of what we can get out of the church. 
We base it on music. We base it on programs. We base it on our children's opportunities. We base it on how the, uh, how the pastor will check on us. We turn the church into a place where we, where we supposed to come together to worship and go out and serve into a place where we come here to be served. We, we turned it into a, uh, the church into a place that should be inclusive and, uh, it should be inclusive, but we turned it into a place that's exclusive. We've turned the church from a hospital of the sick and suffering to a place where our budget can't afford to minister to the sick and suffering. And when we've done this, we've missed the main thing. Church isn't about us. It's about what it's about us doing God's will. <laughs> so I pray that we never come to church wanting just to get our way. But instead, we come looking for the return of Jesus. We come longing for heaven. And if we come longing for heaven and come longing for Jesus, we won't allow that longing for heaven to get in the way of us sharing Jesus. That's the main thing. We must be about our Father's business. Here, God assures us of his Holy Spirit. And we, we who have been saved, we've been assured that he dwells with us so that we can accomplish the assignment that's given. When we look in this passage, we begin to see in verse 8 the assignment that Jesus gave his disciples. The assignment was to be witnesses. These disciples didn't know what was ahead of them, but Jesus knew. What he knew was that they would need a power that they didn't possess. They needed much more than willpower. They needed much more than human determination. They would need a supernatural power in order to fulfill the assignment of being his witnesses. So Jesus tells them that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. The very power of God would come down to live in the hearts of each one of us. Oh, this is the greatest power anyone can be given. You know, Brother Ronald Deldon, for, for many years, he drove a, a black and silver vehicle. And he had a lot of a power and authority on the highways. And all that power and authority that he had on the highways to give you a ticket if you were breaking the law and, to, and to inf the power and authority to enforce the law is not a drop in the bucket to the power that's been placed in him now. <laughs> the power that's been placed in him now will allow him to fight every battle without a weapon, a weapon of, of, of guns. He doesn't have to worry about carrying a gun anymore. He don't have to worry about carrying a baton anymore. He doesn't have to worry about carrying a book to write a ticket anymore. What he has is the authority of the word of God and the word of God says that his power would be in him and there's nothing that could come against him that will conquer him. Amen. The Holy Spirit's alive and he's alive in us. And there's no enemy stronger than the power that lives within us. Yes, these men needed a supernatural power. Many of you watched the movie Facing the Giants. We know the movie centers around the Christian Academy football team, the Shiloh Giants. During the movie, the team is doing poorly, 
But in a miraculous turn of events, God does a great work in the lives of the head coach and the student body. All of a sudden, the football team begins winning. And through a series of unlikely events, the team makes it to the championship game. And in that game, they find themselves down two points with two seconds to go. And all they have left is an opportunity to try a Hail Mary or to kick a 51-yard field goal. Well, the problem with the 51-yard field goal, which made sense, is that their best kicker was on the bench, injured in the game. And it left this little young teenage boy who in his first year of playing football, was just a kicker because he was a soccer player and the smallest and weakest on the team. And it's left to him. He tells the coach that he has never kicked the ball that far and he can't do it. And the coach pleads with him he's their only chance and if he believes God (laughs) if he believes God can do anything then just go out there and trust it he settles in his mind he's going out there and he's going to do what he can and he looks at that field goal post a long way away 51 yards away he looks down at the ball and he looks up into the heaven And he cries out, Lord, I need you now. (laughs) Cries out understanding if it's going to happen, it's going to happen through your power. (laughs) And with a gust of wind coming up, the coach yells for them to snap the ball. They snap the ball. He kicks it with everything that he has. He makes the field goal, and they win the game. David was only able to complete that assignment given to him in that moment of that evening by the power of God. It's only through the power of God's Holy Spirit indwelling in us that we can carry out our assignments. When we have been assigned to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to whoever will believe. Jesus knew when he ascended back to the Father that we would need help, that we couldn't do this in our own strength. And folks, we can't go out in our own strength. If we go out on our own strength, we're going to make a mess. But we need him to lead us. We need him to guide us. And he will do that if we will follow him him he will lead us he will guide us to those who God's already been working in their lives you remember when you got saved and someone shared the gospel with you whether it was a preacher from a pulpit or someone coming to your home or someone on the assembly line at work or whether you were riding in your car and you listened to the radio, before that moment, God had been working in your life. How do I know that? Because you wouldn't have went to a church if God wasn't working in your life. How do I know? Because you wouldn't have been listening to a gospel station if God wasn't working in your life. Because you wouldn't have let them into your house to witness to you if God hadn't have been working in your life. God's already working and we can rest assured. He's prepared them for us when our assignment comes. He will lead us. He will guide us. And he'll give us everything that we need to complete our assignment. Yes, God has assured us.
the power to complete our assignment. And God has promised that we'll see him in his glory. And you look there in this last thing I want us to see very briefly. Is the ascension that was gazed upon. The Bible tells us after Jesus had spoken to the disciples while they were watching. <laughs> that he was taken up in the cloud. And he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. That's noteworthy. We can't miss that. We can't miss the fact that the cloud received him. <laughs> Why is that? Because in the Old Testament, the cloud represented the Shekinah glory of God. Otherwise known, when we say the Shekinah glory, or you hear anyone say that, what they're talking about is the abiding presence of God. In other words, the abiding presence of God was taken up into the clouds, into the Shekinah glory, into the abiding presence of God. Can you figure that out? The abiding presence of God was taken up into the abiding presence of God. I can't make sense of that. I just know it's true. God is able to do what we can't fathom and what makes sense to God is not going to always make sense to us, but we can trust his process. The first evidence of this cloud being the abiding presence of God, we find it as Israel's leaving out of Egypt and God's protecting them with a fire by night, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And we find it also when the cloud is on the mountaintop and he, and, and he speaks through the cloud to Moses to assure him that his presence will always abide with the Israelites. We also see in the tabernacle that God's abiding presence, this cloud, it hovered over the mercy seat as it was in the tabernacle signifying God's presence in the holy of holies. It was a cloud that by God's abiding presence that received Jesus Christ. God's abiding presence to himself. Jesus on earth himself was God's abiding presence. What power? Only God could do something like that. What power he has given us to be able to tap into to where God himself received God himself in a moment while they were gazing up watching. How do we know this? John 1, 1 through 5 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, and in him was life, and life was in the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God was taken up into his glory in glory. <laughs> Do you get that? Jesus Christ, the glory of God, went back into glory, taken up through that cloud, the Shekinah glory of God. Well, I'll tell you, if, if this doesn't excite you, I don't know what will, but it should excite us that, that Jesus Christ himself, being the glory of God, was taken into the glory of God by the glory of God because one day he's coming back, and when he comes back, he's going to receive those who know him as Lord and Savior. I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but the Bible teaches us that when he comes back at the sound 
sound of the trumpet and the voice of the archangel with the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who've been burned up, those who've been lost at sea, those who have been buried in the ground and have went back to the dust of the earth. They're coming back together and glory's coming out of glory and glory's going to receive us and he's going to glorify us as we go and live with him forever. Oh, the good thing. The good thing is that if you're here, if I'm here, when he comes back, he ain't leaving us here. If we know him as Lord and Savior, the Bible tells in the moment, the twinkling of an eye, we're going back with the dead, that, with those who had died in Christ. You know, they won't get to him before we do. It's almost as if they're going to stop for that second, for that moment, the twinkling of an eye. They've got to stop and let us catch up. Because when we get there, we're going to all be together. Well, that ought to excite us. And when we get there, he'll glorify us. Yes. As these disciples were watching, as the cloud was receiving Jesus, they were gazing to see their Savior, Jesus Christ, the glory of God, taken up in the glory of God, to then dwell in the glory of God. But that's not the end of the story. Here, out of nowhere, two men appear. They stood in white apparel. And they stood saying, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus, taken from you into heaven, will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. <laughs> this same Jesus who ascended into heaven is the same Jesus the disciples knew on earth. The same Jesus, their Lord and Savior, their teacher, their companion, their advocate, their mediator. He's coming back. <laughs> and he's coming back in like manner. He's coming back in glory. He ascended into heaven. And in the same glory, he's coming back to get us. Those of us who are saved... Those of us who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we can trust God's process. We have the assurance of his Holy Spirit abiding with us. His Holy Spirit will lead, guide, empower, and enable us to complete our assignment. And we, he will descend back to receive us unto himself. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the message today. And if you happen to not have a relationship with God, through his son, Jesus Christ. We want to invite you to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It's as simple as the ABCs. If you would admit that you are a sinner and that you are in need of a Savior and believe that God sent his very son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth to be the sacrifice for our sins and that he died for our sins and he arose on the third day, and then if you would confess him as your Lord and Savior, you can be saved. You must believe this with all your heart. And you must be willing to serve him. If you are, all you have to do is talk with Jesus. You don't need a preacher. You don't need a church to get saved. But if you get saved, find yourself a Bible-believing church.
and I believe God will richly bless you.